Well, good morning, church. Welcome and take your Bibles and turn with me to 1 Corinthians this morning. 1 Corinthians chapter 15, or using our Bibles here, page 933. Trust you can follow along there, or maybe your Bible app, that would work too. Today we're going to study the most important truth in the Bible. The most important truth in the Bible for you personally is what we're studying, and the reason we know it's the most important is because in our text today, verse 3, we'll say this is of first importance. And if you want the brief version, because you're not sure you're going to be uh, you know, following along too close, here's the brief version. The most important truth in the Bible is that Jesus died for our sins and rose again. If you get that, you got the point today. Jesus died for our sins and rose again is the most important truth in the Bible for you uh, personally. As, as, as Seth mentioned, we are uh, continuing in our study of our core values as a church. Uh, there are copies of the nine core values at the back table. You can find them on our website as well. If you recall last week, if you were with us, we looked at the first core value, which I think needs to be obvious. What is our basis of authority for anything we believe or do or emphasize as a church? Because the, the core value we had to start with is what is our basis of authority? And the basis of our authority in any issue as individual Christians or as a church must be the Word of God, the Bible. We teach God's inerrant Word as fully authoritative, seeking at all age levels to promote Bible knowledge and apply it to daily life. That's, that's what we seek to do. This, this has to be what we emphasized when we looked at this important passage in 2 Timothy. Uh, if you recall last week, we also talked about a 30-day challenge. Uh, something that's been helpful to quite a number throughout the church family the last couple of years. And uh, if you've found that you agree the Bible's really important, but you find that you just don't take the time for it, I would like to just reissue this challenge. The idea of a 30-day challenge is simply that you would invest every day for 30 days in the Word of God. Maybe that's a start, maybe that's a restart for you. And in case you had good intentions last week and this last week didn't go too well, then just start over, okay? And go from, what is this, September 18 to October 18 and invest some kind of significant time to read the Word of God every day and see what God does in your life. And I'd love to hear, I'd love for you to share maybe in a, in a study or with friends something that God does in your life because this is, this is God in heaven speaking to us on earth today. It is different than every other book. That's our basis of authority. If we don't have this right, then everything else we talk about is shaky and suspect. Core value number two today is the gospel. We want to keep the gospel clear and simple. We could have stopped there, but we went ahead and, and described this gospel message. We are all sinners unable to earn salvation. Eternal life is given by God. To all who trust in Jesus Christ alone, who died for our sin and rose again. And so we're looking at 1 Corinthians. The key issue is that we want to keep the gospel clear and simple. Because if you think of what the gospel message is, it is the determining factor of where you will be one moment after you die 
And that's true for everyone we know. So get this right, and you spend eternity in heaven. Get it wrong, and eternal judgment in hell awaits. We have to know what's at stake. I know it's uncomfortable to talk about heaven and hell both, but that is why keeping it clear is so important. We must understand what is at stake, so we must keep it clear and simple, as I'm convinced the Scripture really does. So chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, uh, called the resurrection chapter, we're only focusing on the first eight verses, but if you read the whole, the whole chapter, you see it's all about the importance of Jesus not only dying, but rising from the dead. Verse 1, now brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you. Otherwise, you've believed in vain. So before he gets to this most important message of the gospel, verses 3 and following, he wants to tell us that I've already told you this, and the Corinthian church, he's writing to them some 20 years after Jesus died, rose again, went back to heaven. He says, I've preached this important message to you. The gospel is first mentioned here by name, gospel. Gospel is literally the terms good news, and it's the good news that God has solved our sin problem through Jesus Christ. God has solved that uncomfortable concern about eternal judgment because Jesus Christ came. So the gospel is good news, and Paul has already declared it to them. He's told them. He was there. He preached it. He explained it. He came to Corinth, as he did to each city, to explain that they were living really at a pivot point of human history. Because all the time before Jesus... In the Old Testament era, the, the coming of Jesus was prophesied and it was promised and it was pictured in that sacrifice system where they continually were sacrificing animals for the atonement of their sins, anticipating a day when God would take care of the sin problem. And now Jesus had come to take care of the sin problem. And now Paul is talking to the Corinthians as he wrote to various others, Ephesians or Philippians or Colossians or Roman people. That He said, now... Christ has taken care of the sin problem forever. That's why it's good news. And he has declared it to them. And Acts 18 tells the story of how Paul came to Corinth the first time and, uh, to preach the message that, that back in Jerusalem, far, quite a ways from Corinth, Jesus had died to pay off all the sin debt and to pay it forward for everybody else. And, and they needed to know this. And, and so he came there and, and he, he has to be able to feed himself. So he's working with this couple named Aquila and Priscilla and they're working, making tents part-time and part-time talking about the gospel to people wherever they could find them. And, and uh, then Silas and Timothy came to help out, probably with supporting them, so Paul could then now go full-time throughout the day sharing the gospel with people. And it says how he goes, first of all, as he always did, to the synagogue. That's where the Jews met for worship when they weren't in Jerusalem. And he begins to explain to them, Jesus is the fulfillment of all those promises. And, and he's explaining it to them, but they didn't want to hear it for the most part. They kicked him out. And so he went to the home of Titius Justus, somebody who had received it, and he began to teach the gospel there. And for some year and a half, 
he continued to speak the gospel there in Corinth, the good news. I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you have received and in which you've taken your stand. The first of two of the first four ways that it just in these opening verses, he said, the gospel message of Jesus demands a response. And he kind of says it in four ways that kind of overlap. But he says, you received it and on which you have taken your stand. So they, obviously, they understood it. They understood the gospel. Do you know when you, can you remember when you first understood the gospel? Think back, if you, if you feel like you know this. Could be that it's new to you today, and you're going to understand the gospel clearly for the first time, but think back with appreciation of when you understood these key elements of the good news, that First of all, there is a God who created all things, and he's fully in charge. And this eternal, amazing God is both holy and just and must punish sin, but is also incredibly, infinitely loving because he wants no one to be punished for their sin. He wants to have us in heaven with him. He doesn't want anybody to perish. And how the, then he sent Jesus Christ to solve that sin problem that would keep sinful man away from a holy God. And then you understood what you needed to do to believe the gospel. Think back with appreciation as Paul is trying to remind them of that time. They received it and they uh, stood on it. The word received, first of all, is, is about embracing something as authoritative. So as, as they heard Paul talking about Jesus coming in fulfillment of the Old Testament promises, they had to receive it and say, Paul is speaking the truth. You have to believe the one you're talking, you're hearing it from. Now, Paul didn't have the New Testament. He was living it. So they had to accept as authoritative what he was saying, partly from the Old Testament scriptures that are referred to in verses 3 and 4, but partly just because there is a sense of, of God's apostolic commissioning of Paul as he spoke, and they had to believe that he was speaking the truth. So they received it, and they firmly believed it. The, the metaphor is of standing, you know, okay, you're, you're stable, okay? And, and so they firmly believed it, they accepted it as true, and defend, would defend it as true. Verse 2, we'll meet two more terms to describe the response to the gospel. By this gospel you are saved, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. The next two phrases that respond about the response to the gospel are that you would hold firmly to it and believe it. The word believe is used of believing the wrong things, but obviously you need to believe the right thing. But the most important term up front is this term, by this gospel you are saved. The good news of Jesus, that he died for your sin and rose again, is the gospel, the good news by which you, me, anyone, anywhere, anytime is saved. Saved from what? The word saved can be used in the, in, the, in, the, in the Bible just like we use it to be saved physically from something, right? Uh, one time Jesus and his disciples were crossing the Sea of Galilee in a boat. Jesus was sleeping and a storm came up and Jesus was still sleeping. 
And uh, the disciples wake him up and say, save us for we are perishing. He was talking about you know, saving their lives and he, he calms the storm. But what is Paul talking about in, in the New Testament passages throughout the New Testament? He talks about being saved. People talk about being saved. We have to, if we don't understand what we're saved from, saved is meaningless. It's, save, saving is, is yawn-worthy unless we know what is at stake. What are we saved from? We are saved from the eternal punishment of our sin. Matthew 1.21, the angel came to Joseph to say that the baby Jesus conceived in Mary would save his people, what? From their sin. That's what Jesus came to do. To save us from our sins means to save us from the punishment of our sins, to rescue, to spare us the judgment that our sins deserve before a holy God. So let's think through some of these great gospel verses that you read with uh, Pastor Seth earlier. Let's think of them for the moment more about the bad news than the good news because the good news is only good if we understand the bad news that being saved means that we are rescued from eternal judgment. So the, the, the words of John 3.16 for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son, and we just think of the cross, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. Shall not perish. That means that the whole world's in danger of perishing. Shall not perish, but have eternal life. A couple of verses later, whoever believes in him is not condemned because but whoever does not believe stands condemned already because they've not believed in the name of God's one and only Son. The whole world is under condemnation. The whole world would perish. The whole world of people is under condemnation because of sin. Or the last verse we read together, whoever believes in the Son has eternal life, but whoever rejects the Son will not see life, for God's wrath remains on them. The whole world is in danger of eternal perishing, eternal condemnation, and facing God's eternal wrath. We have to understand what's at stake. We have to understand the seriousness of our message. When we think about as a church that our core value is to keep the gospel clear and simple, it's hopefully because we have a clear view of what is really, actually, truly at stake for every person you meet in Walmart or McDonald's or pass on the road or work next to. This is what's at stake. And the good news is not good news unless we know what we are saved from. We are saved from this. By the gospel, you are saved from God's wrath. That's a description of hell. If we believe value number one that the Bible is authoritative on all things, then we have to know what the Bible says about hell as well as heaven. It's, it's uncomfortable. It's, it's emotionally painful to talk about hell and to really grasp its reality. But you know, when a child that you love runs out onto a busy street, you don't worry about coming across grouchy or negative. 
You will yell that child to safety. You will do whatever it takes. We have to understand the stakes. We're going to look at some biblical conclusions. We won't do a, a deep dive into all these passages. But just a list of some of the, the biblical conclusions, what the Bible says about hell. It's part of an outline. You can find the full outline. It's just a two-page outline I have on Bible.org. I've got copies at the back, or you can just Google that phrase and you'll find it. But here are just the conclusions we must take seriously. Everyone will exist eternally, either in heaven or hell. Daniel 12 says, everybody's going to be resurrected, either to eternal life or eternal judgment. Do you know that everybody's going to live forever? To eternal life or eternal judgment. Hell was designed, Jesus said, for Satan and his demons. Hell is God's hell. Hell is God's hell. And, and it was created for Satan and his demons, but we're clearly told that hell will also punish the sin of those who reject Christ. And when it says punish, it's conscious torment. Read the verses. It's, it's God telling us the truth on earth so we understand eternity. Hell is eternal and irreversible. And so everyone has only this life to determine their destiny. Hebrews 9 says, it's appointed to man to die once. After that is judgment. So the gravity of this is what makes the news so great. What are we saved from? That's why this next section will say that this is of first importance. This is, this is about the pivot point of history. The good news focuses on Jesus Christ who came to pay off the sin debt and, you, and, and deliver from judgment all those who lived before and pay forward the sin debt that you and I would all accumulate. And he came, and so that's very, very good news. By this gospel, you are saved. Verse 2, if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. So hold fastly, hold fast is like grip it. It's a synonym for the next term, believe. To grip something firmly is to rely on it. To believe is to rely on the good news by this gospel. Unless you've believed in something vain, means worthless. Everybody believes something. Option number one is to believe something about eternity that is worthless. All, all around the world there is worthless belief. That's the sad truth. Everybody knows of scams. You read about them in the paper where somebody has scammed someone out of their money. Invest all your money here, and so someone loses their entire life savings because they sincerely believed in the wrong information from the wrong person. They sincerely believed it, and their life savings are gone. They believed the wrong information. And so all around the world are people who believe in something worthless because they are believing in a religion that says you need to do something to earn your way into heaven. And that's false information. Heaven is too great, too wonderful. You cannot earn your way in. 
And the good news is that Christ has already done everything for your salvation. You cannot do something to earn salvation. The good news is that Christ has already done everything to earn your salvation. That's why it's such good news. So option number one is to believe in something worthless. And obviously he's pointing us to believe in the good good news of the gospel. The gospel by which you are saved from eternal judgment. That's what we want to hear. So what does it mean to believe? Because after receiving and taking your stand and hold firmly, the word believe is actually the word that, especially in the Gospel of John, but throughout the New Testament, the word believe, or it's that's a a verb, and the, the noun faith is the same word. That is the key issue. How we must respond to the Gospel to have eternal life is to believe. We better get this one right. To believe means to put your trust in something completely. Next month, Priscilla and I are going to take a uh, vacation trip, and we're going to start out by going, taking the ferry across Lake Michigan. First time we've done it. But we are going to put our car and our luggage and both of our grandchildren's grandparents on this ferry. And we are going to trust this ferry to take us all the way across that great big blue ocean looking thing. We're trusting it. What are you trusting in to get you to heaven? Is it reliable? Unless you believed in vain, you better understand what it means to believe in the good news that is able to save you from eternal judgment. Paul, Paul, please tell us. Verse 3. For what I received, this actually was validated, verified, Christ appeared and had these revelations to Paul. Fascinating. What I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. Here it is. That Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures and he was buried. Two, that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures and that he appeared. And then it lists a bunch of people to whom Jesus, the risen Jesus, appeared. The bottom line is that there are two key truths that comprise the gospel that you must believe in to have eternal life. The cross, that Jesus died according to the scriptures, died for our sins, and then the resurrection, that he was raised the third day according to the scriptures. The cross and the resurrection. The cross and the resurrection. So what is the good news What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins and rose again. What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins and rose again. Would you say it together with me? (laughs) What is the gospel? Christ died for our sins and rose again and nothing. Period. The gospel by which we are saved is Christ died for our sins And rose again. The gospel in which we must place our complete faith about eternity is clear and it's simple. Christ died for our sins and rose again. Nothing else. Don't add anything. Don't confuse it with anything. The gospel by which we are saved is Christ died for our sins and rose again. 
And this is really a big deal. It's of first importance because everybody's going to live somewhere forever. Jesus died for our sins. It, is, it rolls off the tongue so easy that anybody that's ever been a part of any church with a cross on it says, yeah, I, I believe that. Christ died for my sins. But then if you ask them, what are you trusting in for eternal life? Well, I'm trying to be a good person. I go to church. I give my... No, no, no. Christ died for your sins is everything. For your sins means he died instead of you for your sins. He paid for your sins instead of you paying for them. First Peter. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross. Some Bibles say tree. That's literally the word because crosses are made of trees. He bore our sins. So on the cross, our sins were judicially, spiritually, eternally put on Christ. He bore them for us. God punished Jesus for your sin. 2 Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us. So the Father did this in his plan of his salvation because he loved you and wanted you to be forever in heaven. He made Jesus, who was sinless, to become sin instead of us. That's what happened on the cross. Before we can really understand what we need to do to respond about what believing is all about, you've got to know what happened on the cross. What are you trusting in? Christ died in your place. 1 John 2, 2. He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins. Uh, the, the, the King James Version says propitiation, which is a good word. Either way, it works because the point is that atoning sacrifice for our sins and for the whole world is that God, Jesus satisfied God's justice towards our sin in the whole world. So God in his perfect holiness and justice was he had to punish sin because no sin can come into heaven. He had to punish sin, and so he, he punished Jesus in your place. And that satisfied his eternal holy wrath towards sin. He died instead of us. That's the first crucial fact we have to understand. The gospel by which you are saved is Jesus died for our sins. It says, according to the scriptures. What scriptures? What scriptures did Paul have? Not the New Testament, not John 3.16. He had the Old Testament scriptures, which he's claiming predicted the death and resurrection of Jesus. Let's take a look at the gospel in the Old Testament. From Isaiah 53, written generally around 700 years B.C. And what does B.C. mean? Before Christ. Very obviously, God's plan had been in place all this time. Before Christ, we were told in Old Testament scriptures all about what Christ would do, that Jesus would die for our sins and rise again. In the selected uh, verses that I've, I'm going to show you from Isaiah 53, the whole chapter is about Jesus, the servant, dying and rising again. But uh, he, the servant, if you see that term, is generally Jesus in this passage, and the Lord is God the Father, okay? The Father and the Son. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace. So the punishment that would make peace between a holy God and sinful man was on him, Jesus. 
And the Lord, that's the Father, has laid on him the iniquity of us all. That's a description of the cross. He died for our sins. All of our sin was placed on Jesus. God punished Jesus instead of us. Verse 10, yet it was the Lord's will, the Father's will, to crush him, Jesus, and cause him to suffer. And though the Lord makes his, Jesus' life, an offering for sin, he, Jesus, will see his offspring or probably, probably the he is the father, I'm sorry. He will see his offspring and prolong his days. So the father's going to prolong the days of Jesus. So he's going to cause him to suffer, that's the cross, but he's going to prolong his days, that's the resurrection. So, so God's plan was not just kill his son, obviously, but to raise him from the dead, because not only do our sins need to be forgiven, we need to be given eternal life. The cross is about how Jesus paid for our sins, so we are forgiven. The empty tomb, the resurrection is about how he can give us eternal life, because Jesus rose to life. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, probably knowledge of him, my righteous servant Jesus will justify many, justify me to be made right before God. Many is y'all. And, and y'all can be right with God. We have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, Romans 5.1. And he will bear their iniquities, for he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. He, the gospel is in the Old Testament. The gospel is in the scriptures that Paul was using. He says, I preached in Corinth the good news that Christ died for our sins according to the scripture. As you allow those thoughts and verses and plans to sink in, I hope you realize the love of God for you. That when all of mankind sinned, God could have just judged us all. But instead, he is not willing for any to perish. And he provided the salvation, that would, the, 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 the sacrifice that would make salvation possible for all the sin of all the world of all time. He died for our sins. Paul goes on to explain that this crucial fact of Christ's death on the cross has to be verified and verifiable. He says, and he was buried. Now that might seem obvious to us, but if you are living 20 years after and you want to know for sure that this happened, you have to know he was really dead. Because if he didn't die, then your sins aren't paid for. In fact, that point will be made uh, in, in the rest of that chapter, if you were to read the rest of it, that he, he had to really die to pay for sins. He had to really rise, or else you're still stuck in your sins. But he was buried. He didn't, he didn't just pass out on the cross, and there was some kind of a sleight of hand, and he was resuscitated in, in that tomb. He was buried dead. John writes the detail. Every, every gospel, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, has a section on the burial of Jesus. Ever noticed that? John writes the details how the soldiers, when Jesus was said to be dead on the cross. They went to go check it out. They broke his legs and they put a spear up his side and blood and water came. He was dead. John goes on to say how Joseph of Arimathea and Nicodemus from John chapter 3 asked for and took the body of Jesus and packed it with some 75 pounds of burial spices, wrapped it in linen cloth. 
In fact, all four Gospels talk about being wrapping, winding the body with cloths, and all four say how he was placed in a tomb and then put a big stone rolled over the front of the tomb so that no one could... Well, you sealed tombs. And some people would say, well, maybe they're going to steal the body and claim that he rose because he, promised, he, he, he prophesied that he would rise from the dead. So the, they went to, some people went to Pilate and said, can you put some guards out there to make sure that he stays in the tomb? And the guards were there. And we know what happened after that because Christ arose when the angel rolled the tomb away. But his death had to be historically indisputable. Our sin is not paid if he didn't really die. And then there wouldn't really be eternal life waiting in heaven because he arose. Jesus died, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, verse 4, and he was buried and he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. All four gospels. You notice the gospels don't all tell all the same stories. Well, they all tell about the death and resurrection of Jesus. In fact, the, the, the resurrection of Jesus is described so, so, so uniquely by each of the four writers, so authentically and, and at great length, so that it would be historically indisputable that Jesus really rose from the dead. Because you have to understand, no one saw him rise from the dead. Jesus was alone in the tomb when the Spirit gave him life. So how would he know that he really rose from the dead? He appeared. That's how you know if someone's alive, he appears. And so there's this list of those, a partial list, of the gospel writers include more, but the God, a list of those that he appeared to. He appeared to Peter, verse 5, and then to the 12 disciples. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers at the same time, most of whom are still living. It's only 20 years later. Though some have fallen asleep, of course, then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and, and last of all, he appeared to me also as to one abnormally or untimely born. So the reason we know that Jesus truly rose, was, died, was he buried, he was buried, and he truly rose because he appeared to Peter, first of all. This was, I think, this is the only, the only place that Peter is mentioned is, is right here that Christ had a personal appearance as a risen Savior to Peter, and then Luke 24, 34 makes allusion to it too. But the story is not told. And I got a feeling it was a very personal, intimate conversation. Uh, Peter was the one who had denied Jesus during that crucial, uh, after the crucial arrest and all of that, and, and Peter was going to be this, this powerhouse helping to start the Jerusalem church, and, and so Jesus appeared to him personally. And then the 12, uh, named for the disciples, even though the first time Christ appeared risen to them, there were just the 10 of them, not Judas, of course, and not Thomas. But they're in an upper room in Jerusalem on the day of the resurrection, and then it was actually another week later he appeared to them again with Thomas there. It was a very real, literal, physical appearance, even though Jesus appeared simply in their midst. Didn't, the door was locked, it says, and he just, boom, appeared. And yet he was physical and real. He said, he said to Thomas later on, you touch me. You know, a touchable body. And so we can get this, our wheels start to turn and like, it says that in heaven we will be like him. So this is really important to know about the, the state of the risen Savior. He, he was, he was uh, resurrected, glorified, immortal, a body that would never die. Heavenly, but physical, literal. 
talking, relating, enjoying, eating. The resurrected Jesus could eat. Marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's, let's be as literal about heaven as the Bible is. To think that we're going to relate and enjoy and eat together. This is our future. And then you appear to 500 at once. This is, the only place, this is the only place we're told that number, but I think it's likely this is the crowd that was present uh, when Jesus was on the mountain of, in Galilee giving the Great Commission, Matthew 28, 500 people. And then James, this is not James, the disciple, James and John. This is James, the half-brother of Jesus. Remember, Jesus had half-brothers, children of, of, of Mary and Joseph, Matthew 13, 55. And this is really a big deal because up to this time, his brothers had not believed in him, John 7, verse 5 says. And the resurrection convinces James. And James becomes a strong leader of the church in Jerusalem also. He's the spokesperson in Acts 15 at the Jerusalem Council conclusion. And, and he's the one who writes our gospel of James, the brother, not the disciple of Jesus. It appeared to the... Uh, the apostles, another reference of it, perhaps another time that he appeared uh, uniquely to them. And then Paul says, and me too. <laughs> they appeared to me also as one who, uh, untimely born. Now, I wasn't, I actually wasn't in that group. I wasn't in the disciples, but Jesus, the risen Jesus appeared to him as well, didn't he? On the road to Damascus, Acts chapter 9, when Paul was this avid persecutor of the church, going to jail Christians Jesus, the risen Jesus, appeared in the glory of the risen Savior, flooded him and blinded him, and that's how Paul, then called Saul, came to faith in Christ as well. What is the gospel? Jesus died for our sins and rose again. Proof? He really died? He was buried. Proof? He really arose? He appeared over and over. How do we respond to the gospel? Believe. Grip, hold firmly, stand fast, get on the ferry, put your faith in Christ alone. So what are you trusting in for your eternal salvation? That is going to make all the difference. It takes a unique humility to put your faith in Christ alone and admit there's not one thing I can do 